Well, have you ever made a big decision in life and then later thought, what have I got myself into? I bet you have. I think we've all been faced with, at one point or another, a tough choice. A choice in life that will change your life no matter what. And later we're bound to wonder, did I do the right thing? And what will become of this choice? And some choices in life are, are truly game changers. They can turn life upside down. It can be a little scary. And when faced with the prospect that your life is going to change, it will never be the same, some people can descend into a tailspin of worry and fear and anxiety. And they wonder as they adjust to their new lives, did, did I do the right thing? Did I make the right choice? I think marriage is one of these big life-changing decisions that cause some people consternation. I've known some young couples who, after they got married, soon thereafter they start to wonder, did, did I do the right thing? Did I marry the right person? Marriage, we know, changes your life forever. You're, before, you only had to worry about your needs and desires. Now there's a, another person's competing needs and desires, and it can lead to real conflict. certainly changes life, and some people find the adjustment hard. I think that problem of cold feet is worse for some people when it comes to kids. A couple has been married for a few years. They want to have kids. They want to expand their family. They think it would be a lot of fun. And so they have kids, and I think we know life is never the same after that. And right off the bat, there, there's no fun per se. There's sleepless nights, changing diapers, crying babies. And after a short while, they're up at four in the morning changing diapers, attending to their crying baby. And, and the thought creeps into their mind, what did I get myself into? And did I do the right thing? Will this decision ever pay off? In reality, though, they, they did make the right decision. There is a great payoff to be had, both in your life and the life of the child. There's going to be many great memories, tons of laughter, a lot to look forward to. And also, you're the primary shaping influence in this child's life. You have a, an opportunity to lead them to the Lord. So, if, of course, you made the right decision. And all of your sacrifices, although they can be hard to bear, they're worth it. In the moment, your hardships and your sacrifices have you scared and maybe nervous or anxious. But what you really need is just a, a few reassuring words of encouragement get you back on track. You have done the right thing. You have made the right decision. Your sacrifice will have a payoff. So be encouraged. Get back on track. Get refocused. Now, if this makes any sense to you, if this resonates with you a little bit, if you're tracking, then at the very least, you're going to understand what the disciples are going through in our passage this morning. So with that, you can take your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 10. Now hopefully you see where I'm going with this. Just think about the 12 disciples. Did they ever make a huge, life-changing decision? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, they were called to leave everything and to follow Jesus. And they did. And we're talking literally everything. They left their families, their their wealth, their businesses, all to follow this guy Jesus around for three years. That's a big decision. And now, some recent events have the disciples anxious. Are they doubting Jesus? No. Are they regretting their move? No, they're not. But they're starting to wonder, is there ever going to be a payoff here? We, we've sacrificed everything to follow Jesus. Is there going to be a payoff? So far, we've, we've experienced loss. Will we ever experience gain? And it's actually a fair question. This is fair to ask, so long as you're not doubting God or you're bitter in your heart. It's not wrong to wonder about the payoff 
for your sacrifice. And we know this isn't wrong because Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for having these thoughts. Rather, he knows that us or we fallen humans can get weary when we're faced with hardship and sacrifice. So he gives the disciples what they need. It's a reassuring word of encouragement. He reminds them of the truth that there is indeed a huge payoff for following Jesus. The sacrifice has been great, but there is a blessing coming that will make it seem small in comparison. There are a few words of warning, though. Keep in mind that this whole business about following Jesus, it's not about you. It's not about your glory and your kingdom. It's about his glory and his kingdom. So, so don't forget that. Anything you do receive, and there is a lot that we have to receive, but even that, it comes by God's grace as a gift. So don't forget that. But there's nothing wrong for us disciples to wonder about what we have coming, what the future holds, what blessings are in store. It's fitting to anticipate the joys to come, and it can even help you run your race. And we find this in our passage this morning, Mark 10, verses 28 through 31. It's a follow-up from the past two weeks. This is all really one section that I've broken up into three parts, Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. They all really go together. But now in this, this little passage, the focus is not on the rich young ruler. It's not even on the rich. It's on the disciples. This is a text that's squarely for the disciples. And that's us. That it certainly includes us. So I trust we'll get a lot out of this. Short enough, so let's begin by reading through our, our little passage, Mark 10, verses 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, this is a passage that is tied at its hip to the context. Hopefully you remembered what we studied the past two weeks, but just in case, I, I have to remind you and bring you up to speed. It, it's very important here. So as you, as you hopefully remember, as Jesus was resuming his final journey to Jerusalem where he will die, this guy runs up to him. This guy, he's not just a guy, he's a rich young ruler, remember. And he asks us the ultimate question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, as we studied, this was a man who was deceived into thinking that he was a good person and that he could be good enough to earn heaven. He just needed to figure out, what more do I need to do? But Jesus easily discerns that this man didn't really know God or serve God. He served money. Money was the functional God in this man's life. It was an idol that had captured his heart. So Jesus sets him straight. But this doesn't stop Jesus from inviting him he shows a man the way of eternal life. It's the same for all people. He tells him, follow me. Everyone must enter through the door of Christ by faith to receive salvation. But this man, he needed to first forsake his sin and tear down the idols of his heart before he could follow Jesus, just like all of us. He must first deny self 
And this looks differently for different people, but Jesus told this man exactly how it would look like for him. And if you remember verse 21 in chapter 10, Jesus said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. And again, it's not, this, it's not that this man would gain eternal life by the meritorious act of selling his stuff and giving to the poor. Rather, his stuff was keeping him from doing the one thing necessary, and that is following Jesus with all your heart. Because his wealth had captured his heart. And so the idol of his heart had to go. But sadly, you know the outcome. This man didn't want to give up his grip on wealth, which in reality had a grip on him. And so he walked away. He counted this life more precious than the next. So he he walked away. This sad, tragic event inspired Jesus to turn to his disciples and teach them a little lesson. And so he says, right after this, Jesus looks to his disciples, verse 23, and says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. This statement and the rejection of the rich young ruler, it's only flabbergasted the disciples. They grew up believing that if you were rich, it was, it was a sign that God had already blessed you. He already favored you. And they, they believed, as did the whole culture, that the riches, having money, that was your greatest advantage to inheriting eternal life. You could use that money to do works and deeds. But in reality, as we studied, money can be one of the greatest barriers to eternal life. Because as a unique way of capturing people's hearts and keeping them from doing the one thing necessary, and denying self to follow Jesus. Anyway, Christ went on to teach his disciples several essential lessons about discipleship and salvation, and we covered all that last week. But now we get to our, our little text, and you really, you've got to keep in mind where we've been, everything that just happened. Because our passage, verses 28 through 31, they don't just come out of nowhere. The disciples are continuing to react to what they just witnessed and heard from Jesus. And we want to spend our time looking at this reaction and how Jesus responds. So let's start now. We're just going to dig into our text at verse 28. And let's begin by looking at their their reaction to everything that just took place. We see Peter's response and his reaction. Again, verse 28. After all this happened, Peter began and said to him, Behold, we have left everything, and followed you. Peter chimes in yet again. You can always count on Peter to, Peter to speak up and tell us what the rest of the disciples are thinking. Only Peter is bold enough or perhaps foolish enough to open his mouth and actually say it. But here he exclaims to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, what about us? We left everything to follow you. The implied question is, you know, what do we get? Out of the equation. And it was, it was true. The 12 disciples, they really did leave everything to follow Jesus. What Jesus told the rich young ruler to do, in essence, they had done. They left it all to follow him. In fact, you're, you're right there. Just turn back to Mark chapter 1. And you remember this. Although it's been about a year since we've been in Mark chapter 1. But the call of, of the, the top four disciples... Look at all that they left, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 
Speaking of Jesus, it says, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little bit further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Peter and Andrew, they left their nets, their boat, their business, their their livelihood, just in a flash to follow Jesus. And then James and John, they left all that too. They also left their father and their inheritance, that they would have inherited the family business, again, to follow Jesus. And, And they didn't hesitate. They didn't stop to set things in order. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, we'll be right there. Just let us sell our nets on Craigslist and we'll, we'll catch up. They didn't do that. They literally left their old lives behind to follow Jesus. So Peter, he, he's, he's reminding Jesus of this. Like, hey, we left everything to follow you. The real question is, why, why is he saying this? Why, what is he getting at? What motivates Peter to, to speak up and remind Jesus that, hey, we, we left everything? Well, again, here's where it relates back to the incident with the rich young ruler. Remember, that that guy was rich. He was really rich. Luke tells us he was exceedingly rich. Mark tells us he owned much property. So I'm just making this up. But for the sake of discussion, let's just pretend that his net worth was like $10 million. Something like that, right? And Jesus told him to do what? He said, sell it all. All $10 million, sell it, give the money to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then the idol of your heart will be removed. And then you can come and follow me and you'll get the eternal life that you're looking for. Well, it appears that this radical call led to some insecurity and to some self-questioning among the disciples in regards to their own level of commitment. Because the disciples, they had left everything, but in comparison to the rich young ruler, they, they didn't leave very much. The rich young ruler was called to leave behind, for example, you know, $10 million to gain treasure in heaven. But the disciples, what did they really leave behind? Like $5,000 worth of nets and a, and a cheap boat. And they were poor. They were lower class men. And their sacrifice appeared as chump change when lined up next to what Jesus called the rich young ruler to give. And so this, this makes them a little insecure. You can almost hear Peter saying, Lord, we're not rich men. We don't have massive treasures to sell, but the little we had, we we gave that up to follow you. So does this count for anything? Will this go unrecognized? Will our sacrifice be for nothing since we had so little to give? Will we have any of that treasure in heaven? It it seems like if the rich young ruler, if he sold it all and gave it to the poor, I mean, not that much money. He would earn himself like a mega mansion in heaven. And meanwhile, the disciples being so poor, leaving behind their nets, what, what does that get them? Like a, a studio apartment in heaven? Now, of course, this is not how it works. Jesus is not establishing some sort of merit-based system of heavenly rewards like this. But we can impart, we can understand the insecurity of the disciples. They wanted to know if their sacrifice would have a payout if they would ever be recognized. They wanted to know what, what they would get for following Jesus. In fact, in Matthew's account, 
Peter asks another question. He makes it explicit. In Matthew's account, we hear Peter saying, Jesus, we have left everything. We've followed you. And then Peter says, what then will there be for us? And he just straight up asks, he's like, what, what do we get? Do, do we get a reward, some treasure in heaven? He wants to know what they will get for their sacrifice. He wants to know, will their sacrifice be ignored because it was so tiny compared to what this guy was just told to give up? Well, for once, Peter wasn't wrong in asking this question. Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus knows what they're going through. He knows this whole incident with the rich young ruler has shaken them up. He knows what they need to hear, some reassuring words of encouragement. So he tells them. He tells them what they need to hear. He tells them, your sacrifice has not been ignored, and you will indeed find a great reward for following me. This is verses 29 and 30. If you're back in Mark 10, you can read those again. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now that's an interesting couple of verses, isn't it? Probably piques your interest. It can be very encouraging, but first you have to know exactly what Jesus is talking about. So let, let's try and find that out. First of all, again, notice there's no rebuke here. And that is significant because several times Peter speaks up, voices his mind, and several times Jesus has to put him in his place. He rebukes Peter for standing out, getting out of line and saying things he shouldn't. But not this time. Peter was not out of line wondering about what they will get for their sacrifice. It's not wrong for you as well to wonder what you will receive for following Jesus. The Lord, he's a good and gracious Heavenly Father, and he loves giving gifts to his children. Not because they earn it, simply because he loves them like any good father. And for this reason, God has already given us the ultimate gift of eternal life, and he chooses to bless us even more on top of this. So it's it's not wrong to to desire the blessings that will come our way, to look forward to our life with him, to anticipate the riches of heaven. But Peter, his inquiry is not wrong. And Jesus responds, and he tells them what they're going to get. Like You you have sacrificed. You guys did leave everything to follow me. You will receive treasure in heaven, even right now. And so Jesus proceeds to tell them what they will receive. And first, what does he say? What is their first reward, so to speak? First, he tells the twelve that they will receive a special blessing in the millennial kingdom. Now, you're probably wondering, like, where's that in our text? It's actually not in our text. It's in the parallel text in Matthew's account. So real quick, just turn backwards to Matthew 19. Just to show you, so you get the whole picture here. Because Matthew tells us one little phrase that Mark does not. But real quick, turn to Matthew 19. Same account, everything happens the same right before the rich young ruler, Jesus teaching on riches. Same response. But Jesus adds one little detail that I'll throw out to you. Matthew 19, verse 27 
Same thing, Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And after this, verse 29, you can see he goes on to say the same thing we have in Mark, which that applies to everyone. But first... Jesus gives a special promise that's just for the twelve. And we're not studying Matthew. I'm not going to take time to exposit this. But in short, he's talking about a special blessing they will get in the millennial kingdom. Just like Jesus is the chief shepherd and they are his under shepherds. So in that time in the kingdom, Jesus will rule over all, but they will have a, a place of rule under him. And the twelve apostles will join the twelve patriarchs in a place of prestige in the kingdom. This is not to their glory. This is to God's glory because they receive this just by God's grace. They, they didn't earn this. But nonetheless, God is free to bless as he sees fit. And he has a special blessing in store just for the twelve. And they will be specially blessed by God's grace. God even goes so far as to give them a permanent place of blessing. In Revelation chapter 21, we learn about this, this place called the New Jerusalem and the New Heavens and New Earth. And in the New Jerusalem, the 12 gates to the city are inscribed with the name of the 12 patriarchs of Israel. But the 12 foundation stones to the city are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. So needless to say, will their sacrifice be forgotten? No, it won't. It will be remembered. They will have a huge payoff for all they've given to follow the Lord. Again, it's not to their glory. This is all to God's glory because it all comes by his grace in the end. But they will be blessed. They will certainly be blessed. And this blessing will vastly outweigh their little sacrifice by comparison, right? And that point, that's true for all of us. You can go back to Mark 10. That's true for all of us. All disciples can look forward to a vast blessing from the Lord that makes your sacrifice seem really tiny by comparison. And getting back to Mark, after Jesus gives this millennial promise for the twelve, he then gives a promise that that is for all disciples. This is it. This is for everyone, including us. No one is excluded here. This is a guaranteed reward for discipleship. This is a, a fixed payout for following Jesus. And what is it? Well, Jesus mentions two things. The first being compensation in the present age. The first benefit of following Jesus is compensation in the present age, meaning everything you gave up to follow him will be returned back to you. And then some. Everything you lost to follow Jesus, you will receive back with interest. And investing in Jesus is good business because the return on investment is huge. Notice he doesn't say 100%. He says a hundredfold, and that's way different. Back then, that's the largest return on investment you can really think of. It's so big, it makes your initial investment seem like nothing by comparison. It's like the lottery. You go buy a $3 ticket, and you win $500 million. I mean, that's a crazy return on investment. That's insane. The problem with the lottery is there's no guarantees. In fact, chances are you will never, ever see that return on investment. But Christ... He's making a guarantee. 
He's saying, if you're a disciple, you have a windfall coming to you. You're probably wondering, though, what's he really talking about? What are we dealing with? Well, you have to think, what did the disciples give up in order to follow Jesus? And Jesus enumerates in verse 29 all the many sacrifices that the disciples made to follow him. He says in verse 29, they left houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and farms for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. That's what they lost. They gave up. In short, you could say they left their homes, their family, and their wealth, if you want to summarize. Not all disciples have left all of these things, but all disciples have suffered some loss in order to gain Christ. All of them have. But Jesus says that they will get it all back a hundredfold. And he's not talking about heaven. He says very clearly at the beginning of verse 30, this is for this present age, now in the present age. So this isn't just pie in the sky when you die, a promise for the next life. This is a promise for right now, this present life. He says, right now you will receive back a hundredfold, verse 30, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms. It's the same list as verse 29. Everything lost in verse 29 is returned in verse 30. Now we're not, still not quite done. Because you're probably wondering, it was still what he's talking about. The disciples, after Jesus you know, came and went, it's not like they struck it rich. The disciples never became super rich. They never received back a ton of wealth. They didn't have large families. They didn't have large houses. So, so what gifts? What's he really talking about with this return? Well, it should come as no surprise to you that Jesus is not promising them material blessings. He's not talking about them receiving more things of the world, as if that's what we live for. Rather, the promised blessing that awaits all disciples in verse 30 is the church. He's talking about the church. The first blessing for all disciples, their reward in this age, is the privilege of being a part of the church. It is only in the church that all lost homes and family and wealth is regained a hundredfold. Because then you become a part of the family of God. And the family of God takes care of one another. You may lose your home in coming to Christ, as many early Christians did. But don't you now have a hundred homes? And the church family is so tight that you could now, if you needed to, you could live with any number of hundreds of people in the universal church. And you may lose family relationships coming to Christ. Many people have. You have relatives that are hostile to the Lord. They cut you off. But don't you now have thousands of brothers and sisters in this new family, the family of God, with a tie that's deeper than blood? The Spirit runs thicker than blood. We're bound by the same Spirit. We have a greater family. And you may lose wealth coming to Christ, as many have, But if you're in need, don't you now have the collective wealth of of hundreds of people who are ready and willing to give, to take care of you if you're really in a a time of need? Really think if you lose your job and you're on the verge of starving, that your church family will let that happen? No. And this is the supreme blessing of being a part of the church, which Ephesians 2.19 says is the household of God. Just think of all the benefits that come with family. There's love and joy and support and care. 
Now multiply that by 100 and add the deeper bond of the Holy Spirit and hopefully you see the benefit of the church that Christ is talking about. You become part of this new family. And although you may suffer some loss in regards to following Christ, losing your home, your family, your wealth, or anything that stands in the way of you following Christ, in the end, you don't lose, you gain. You don't know any real subtraction, only addition, only multiplication. And it comes in this life. And we see the blessing of the church that Jesus promises here. We see it lived out right away in the early church. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people are saved. Remember that? These were all Jews who had pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for the great feast. And they all get saved, or 3,000 get saved. And a lot of them, they don't want to go back home. They've got nothing to go back to. There are no Christians back home. They want to stay with the new church. They want to learn more about the Lord. And so many of them stay. Thousands end up staying in Jerusalem. And they literally leave behind their homes, their relatives, their wealth. But everything they lost was replaced. Those with means in Jerusalem provided them homes and food in a massive hospitality effort. You can trace this through the book of Acts. And they, they gained a new family. There was like one big family. They were spending time together, eating, eating meals together, serving God together. They were a new family. And they had a new father. God was their father. In fact, in verse 30 of Mark 10, that's the one item that Jesus leaves out of the list, is father, from verse 29, because there's only one father, the heavenly father, and we all share in him. So this is the first supreme blessing awaiting all disciples. This is the payout for your sacrifice in this present age and its church membership. The reward is the privilege of being a part of the family of God. And all the benefits that come with having God now as your father. That's a sweet deal. When you stop and think about what comes when God is your heavenly father. And real quick, let me throw out a side note. This is yet another reason that when I, when I hear so-called Christians, or when I see so-called Christians who, who pretty much hate the church, they, they, have, they find no value, they derive no joy in being a part of the church. But I, I just see nothing but red flags. If you follow the Lord, you truly love the Lord, then you will love what he loves. And Christ loves his church. He died for his church. And so when I see people who claim to be Christians but don't love the church, well, that that says more about them. That's really revealing. They're showing their true colors. Not only are they missing out on the great blessing we have in this age, but most likely they're revealing that they probably don't know the Lord because the Lord loves his church. And if you love the Lord, you love the church too. But for true believers, though, the fellowship of the saints is so precious. They love being a part of the new family. And it's so precious, especially when persecution comes. And you probably noticed Jesus snuck this into verse 30, didn't he? Yeah, he threw in persecutions. What do we have to look forward to as disciples? Well, we've got the great blessing of being part of the church. But lest we get too caught up with this present life, there's also some persecution to look forward to. Here in this life, in the end, we are aliens, we are strangers. We're even persecuted because most people hate the Lord. But this persecution is not wasted. It has many functions. For one, it drives us closer together. 
When we suffer together for the same reason, for Christ and the gospel, it knits us tighter together. And in a way, persecution leads to us having greater fellowship, which in in turn leads to greater joy and blessing. But ultimately, persecution drives us to long for the next life, to long for the ultimate reward, the greater blessing that awaits all disciples, but it's not in this present age. That's why Jesus ends verse 30. He says, your second blessing is in the age to come. It is eternal life. This is the second compensation Jesus encourages us with. And it really makes up for everything we leave to follow him. When When you consider the life to come, all your sufferings and all your sacrifices appear as nothing by comparison. And isn't this what Paul says, Romans 8, 8, 18? Or rather, Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. When you finally inherit eternal life, when you finally enter the kingdom, you're going to be blown away. And then all the sacrifices you made in your life to follow Jesus, think about them, all of them will seem like nothing because you receive so much in return. And there's nothing that compares to this return on investment. You invest your tiny little life and a few things here and there, but you return eternal life with the Heavenly Father. No wonder this is referred to as the blessed hope. You get to be with the Lord and His church forever. This is the ultimate reward. But in reality, though, we can't, we can't really call this a reward, can we? Because it's not like we earn this or deserve this. It's not like we get this by way of our merit. It's not really a reward. None of our heavenly riches come to us because of our own worth. Everything we receive is a gift by God's grace. It's not wrong to desire this gift, but at the same time, you need to keep in mind that you know, it's not about you. You don't want to have a self-seeking spirit when it comes to even something like heaven where it's about you, your kingdom, your glory. That's not what it's about. And I think Jesus hints at this in the last verse, verse 31, with a little reminder. He finishes our little section. He says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And in the context, this has an obvious implication. People like the rich young ruler, they appear to be first in this life, But in reality, they're too rich for the kingdom. They will be last. They won't even get in. But those who appear last in this life, the meek, the lowly, those in need, the humble, like the disciples, they gain entrance. And we know there's coming a great reversal when God will humble the proud and give grace to those who are humble. But there's also in these words a subtle warning for all disciples. The 12 disciples, as you may recall, They often gave the impression that they were really in it for themselves, or they were really concerned for themselves. They wanted to be first in the kingdom. They wanted the the glory for themselves. They wanted the power for themselves. And following Christ, it's not about building your kingdom. It's not about your kingdom come. It's not about serving yourself or earning the greatest reward. Everything comes to us by grace. So just beware trying to be first for your own sake, as if this is about you. It's not about you. It's not about your kingdom. It's not about your glory or mine. It's about the Lord's. 
If you really want to be great in the kingdom, then what is Jesus going to say in just a few verses in Mark 10? You really want to be great? Then serve other people. Be last. Be the servant of all. And then you'll be great in God's eyes. But just guard your heart against wanting to be first in your own kingdom, for your own glory, for your own sake. That's not what this is about. Now, that's not to say that we, sh- we still shouldn't desire our eternal life. We very much should. It is actually good and right for believers to anticipate the gift that will come our way and to dwell on it, even to live this life in light of our eternal life. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we get. And keep in mind that that heavenly citizenship, it's it's promised. This is a guarantee that is coming our way. But it's not guaranteed for everyone. It's only guaranteed for true disciples. Only true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ will benefit eternally for their sacrifice. And knowing this, that should cause you to examine yourself. And make sure this includes you. Are you a true disciple? And what does a true disciple look like? Well, I want you to humor me just one more time. I know you've seen it like a million times, but turn back just a page to Mark chapter 8. Turn back one more time to Mark chapter 8. I already told you these are pinnacle verses. I want to read them one more time. You'll see where I'm going here. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. He summoned the crowd with his disciples. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And most likely you haven't realized this, but the passages we've studied the past two weeks, including today, they've basically been a living picture of this passage, specifically verse 35. I mean, just think about it. Who was the rich young ruler? He was a man who desired the next life, but he wasn't willing to give up this life to gain it. In the end, he desired more to save his life, this life, a life of wealth. And he did. He saved his life, this life. But in so doing, he lost the next. The rich young ruler is a perfect picture of verse 35. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. It's the rich young ruler. And as verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The rich man, he had the world at his fingertips. He had gained everything, but he lost his soul. He walked away, retaining his possessions, but losing eternal life. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? His answer was his money. He gave his money in exchange for his soul. There are many answers to that question. All of them are wrong because nothing is as important as your soul. But on the other hand, verse 35 Jesus says also, whoever loses his life 
for my sake in the Gospels. He will save it. And you want a picture of that? It's the disciples. That's what they did. They gave up their lives. They offered themselves up to the Lord. They stopped living this life for self, and they started living this life for God. And in so doing, they suffered loss, but they saved their lives. They found the narrow path to eternal life. And this is what true discipleship looks like. Of course, this requires faith. Salvation is only by faith in Christ. But everyone wonders, hey, what does faith really mean? What does faith really look like? It's not some lifeless confession like, yeah, I I believe in Jesus. It's not just a set of head knowledge. Rather, saving faith is a desperate commitment to Jesus. It's a clinging trust in him alone to save you where you happily follow him for the rest of your life for a new life. And here we learn yet again that saving faith readily forsakes anything that stands in the way of following Jesus. Saving faith is ready and willing to give up living life for self in order to live life for the Lord. Now that's what we're talking about here. Sacrifices will be made, but everything is worth it if in the end you gain Christ because Jesus turns all loss into gain. You should understand that what each disciple gives up is different. The call to deny self and live for the Lord, it looks different for different disciples. For instance, we today, we're not called to get rid of everything and walk around the Middle East for three years to follow Jesus. That's obviously not our call. We're also not called to sell all our, all our possessions, give to the poor, like the rich young ruler. That, that's not our specific call. But we are called to give up anything that stands in the way to following the Lord. So for example, let's just pretend you're a, you're a good old used car salesman and you have built your business by lying to people and selling them on false promises. But then you come to Christ and Christ obviously calls you to be honest in all your dealings. So, so what do you do? If you stop lying, your sales may plummet. You may even lose your business. But the true disciple is willing to suffer loss, this loss, in order to gain the Lord, to be faithful to the Lord. And who knows, God might still bless, but you are compelled to do what is right. Or maybe you're a student. You're a student at a liberal college, and you're required to write a paper supporting evolution. But you've come to Christ, your beliefs have changed, so what do you do? You know that if you take a stand for the truth, it will cost you your grade, your reputation, you know you will face certain ridicule. Everyone in the class will ridicule you. So, so what do you do? Well, the true disciple will accept the cost. This is a cost that has to be paid for discipleship. You will suffer some losses, but you will stay true to the Lord. Or one more example for you. Let's just say your parents are staunchly Catholic. But you've come to know the, the Lord truly as a Bible-believing Christian And they're upset. They feel you've gone against the family like you're a traitor. You've turned against the family. And then they learn that you won't be baptizing your new baby in the Catholic Church. And they're outraged. And they they threaten to cut you off. So what do you do? People, like the rich young ruler, they capitulate, meaning they give in. They think, well, following Jesus is nice, but it's not worth losing my family over. I'm not going to give up, you know, having ties to my family. So I'll just, you know, go back to the Catholic Church or whatever. They give up. They, in effect, they walk away. But not for true disciples. 
They know that nothing is worth forsaking the Lord. They have to be true to the Lord. They must follow despite the cost. It might be family, it might be wealth, it might be your home, like Jesus said. And don't think scenarios like this don't happen. They happen all the time. It looks different for different people, but you get the picture. The true disciple seeks the Lord and his eternal life, and he or she is ready and willing to suffer loss, to sacrifice in order to gain the Lord. We're talking about an attitude where you say, Lord, here is my life. What would you do with it? What would you have me do with it? What would you have me change? It doesn't mean everything will change when you come to Christ, but it means everything might change depending on his will. And so you embark upon a life now where you're constantly seeking his will through his word and living accordingly. You're bringing your life into unison with his will. That's the life of a disciple. So you say, Lord, here's my marriage. How would you have me act? Lord, here are my kids. How would you have me raise them? Here's my job. How should I carry myself? Here are my finances. How would you have me spend them? And so on. This is the approach of a true disciple. There will be sacrifice. There will be loss as changes are made, things are given up. But there will be great gain as well. So examine yourself. Are you holding anything back from the Lord? Is anything keeping you from following the Lord? What will you give in exchange for your soul? You must count nothing as precious as the Lord. That being said, I know there are many in here who have already made sacrifices. I know you. I know many. You've already given up homes, wealth, income, relationships, reputation, friendships, a promotion at work, the list goes on. You've already suffered loss out of allegiance to Christ. And maybe sometimes you're sitting there thinking, is it worth it? Did I make the right choice? Will there ever be a payoff? Does the Lord even recognize what I'm going through, how hard it is, what I've given up to follow him? This passage says, take heart. The answer is yes. The Lord knows and he sees then he has a blessing in store for all those who are his that you can't even imagine. So in the here and now in this life, first, take delight in the church. Everything you've lost in this life, you can regain right now in the people of God, a greater family to meet your needs, to participate in the family of God. Enjoy it. This is a great blessing in life. But there's a greater joy to be had and it's not wrong for us to be anticipating and desiring the next life, the eternal life. If you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing can keep you from the kingdom. And when that time comes, everything that has been counted as loss in your life will be counted as gain. Martin, Martin Luther put it so well in his famous hymn when he said, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Lord, we we here long for your kingdom. We experience the, the sufferings of this life, sometimes the persecutions, sometimes the hardships, sometimes the cost for all of us to follow Christ as our Lord and Savior. It will require some sacrifice in this life 
And what's it going to be? We might have to change the way we do business. Our family relationships might change. Our hobbies, our relationships. Things are going to change and we might suffer loss. And indeed, we will suffer loss when persecution comes. That too is promised for us. The, the road you've called us on, it's narrow and it's hard. It's bumpy. It's difficult, Lord. But we take joy and encouragement knowing that at the end of this road, there, there is a kingdom. There's a kingdom that you have prepared for yourself, for your own glory, and this is all to your glory, but that we are allowed to participate in, and the joy will also be ours. We thank you for this. We look forward to what's at the end of our race, finishing, crossing the finish line, and just resting in your kingdom with your son and with your people forever. And Lord, we also delight and thank you for the present blessing of the church. We are not running this race alone. We have a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and we have the church running by our side. May we help one another on the race. May we encourage one another. May we just enjoy life with one another as we seek you. Bless this church. May we be a, a place of rest for all those who know you, a place of encouragement. And keep us running strong. We long for what's ahead, but may we not be distracted from living this life for your glory and honoring you. We thank you for everything. The blessings are ours, but the glory is yours. In your name we pray. Amen.